0: All right, let's get started here. Glad you can catch up with folks. We'll do some more of that as the day goes on. I want us to finish up our study of sanctification, give you a few other resources to consider. Hopefully this week you gave some thought to this process of change. Maybe it was thrust upon you uh, by temptation you faced by a, a, a struggle, a sin failure, a moment of selfishness, and you realized, once again, these principles we're considering are significant tools for us to help ourselves and for us to help others. Do you think of yourself as a counselor? Well, if you grasp some of these scriptures or principles, you'd be more equipped to be helping others with the process of change. Uh, There are ways that we can be better spouses by simply pointing each other to the scriptures. Um, Sometimes we may want to fix them, and that's not always a bad thing. Um, But if we could just remind of the scriptural principle at times, if we could ask a, a helpful question, maybe we would help each other change a little better. We would invite change rather than stirring up resistance. And so as we think on concepts like this, really as you listen to any sermon or any teaching, let it it be a benefit to you. Harvest every bit of the help that you need. But in being helped by God's word and the spirit, recognize that you are being equipped to help others. Uh, you, you don't need a degree or a certification, though sometimes that's a great avenue to explore your gifting. But for all of us, the scriptures are clear. We are supposed to be helping each other uh, from the Bible to change. And so glean from some of these things. If getting the book or one of these other books I might share could be helpful to you, then do that. Uh and, and read and become a student for your own sake and for the sake of others. I want to highlight uh, just a few thoughts from each of these chapters, and then we'll put this book behind us and move on. You Can Change by Tim Chester. A couple of you have purchased it, I know. Um, and if you do so, mark it up and use it. Don't let it be just, oh, I want to read that book because we covered it in the class. Make it a resource and keep going back to it. Uh, Find a couple of key favorite ideas and just camp out on them, master them. So if you need to counsel someone, uh, you might not have everything to say, but you have something to say. You're good at one thing, maybe. Maybe one of these things about turning from the lie. What lie are you believing right now and what truth do you need to hear? If you could be someone who masters that principle, you could really be a good counselor, you say, well, there's more in the scripture you should know. Yes, there is, but it's kind of like Chick-fil-A. You know, there's more that they could add to their menu. You know, where's the hamburger, right? Well, they don't do hamburgers. They just, they just know chicken. That's what they do. So if you go in there and say, I'd like a, a big quarter pound hamburger, they would probably politely send you somewhere down the road and, and tell you that we do chicken, all right? Get good at something. Uh, you, don't, you don't be overwhelmed and think, I could never be a counselor and deal with all the problems. Well, just find some part of scripture, something that you can see and love there, and get good at that. Maybe you can move on and add some more things to your toolbox, but, but get good at something and be ready to counsel folks. Chapter one asks the question, what do you want to change? So again, it's good for us to visit that. Uh, because we might say, I want to I change this anger issue. I want to change my fear of people. You know, I'm afraid of what people think. It creeps up in the things I'm going to say, and I don't know if I should say it because I'm afraid of what they're going to think. It, it factors into the way I dress. I look at my wardrobe, and I'm afraid of what people will think. When it, you, That's great. You should want to change that. But in chapter 1, he takes us back to God's agenda for our change. And that is not just to be rid of certain sin struggles, but God's agenda starts at the other end of the spectrum, at the perfection of Christ. And we're told that God's agenda for change in our lives is to make us like Christ. Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed To the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, Jesus, Son of God, comes to earth to reveal the righteousness of God, the perfection of God. He's the fulfillment of all that the law was designed to show us. This was what righteousness looks like, and yet we looked at the law, we saw it written in stone, and we we couldn't measure up to it. And, and now we kind of fall under this constant judgment. The righteousness of God kind of hung over us as this awful standard that we could not meet. But then the righteousness of God appears in a condescending way. And by condescending, not, not negatively, but literally coming down from heaven. If we aren't righteous enough to make it to heaven, then God was going to descend or condescend to us, Philippians 2. And Jesus, though he was God and had all the attributes of God, Philippians 2 said was willing to lay aside the independent exercise of that Godhead and to take on his divine nature, a human nature, and live within the limitations of that human nature. And in that form was able to keep all of the law of God so that the law was satisfied. A representative of humanity has kept the law on behalf of all others just as a representative of humanity in the garden broke God's law and cast everyone into sin. And now we have this son of God, this righteous one, showing us what the righteousness of God looks like, that perfection, that doing everything according to the will of the Father. And the plan of God is to make us into that image, to make us look just like him. He's just the firstborn of many that will manifest the perfect righteousness of God, not because they're law keepers, but because... They're Jesus believers. They can't keep the law. Sinners can't do that. But they can put their faith in Jesus Christ, and by his righteousness, they are made righteous. And this is what Isaiah the prophet would speak of when he says, we can be robed in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, It's as if his perfect righteousness is kind of wrapped around us And we stand before the Father in the day of judgment, robed in this righteousness, but we know it's not ours. It's the righteousness of Christ. And yet in that moment, this Romans 8, 29 will become the reality. We will be conformed to the image of Christ, and he will be just the first of many that will be declared to be righteous, fit for heaven in the presence of God's holiness. And so Mark Romans 8, 29, and encourage one another in the, in the journey of sanctification, in the struggle of sanctification. Remember that God's agenda for us is Christlikeness. When somebody says to you, you know, I really need to get better at this or I'm really struggling with that, take them back to the big picture. God wants to shape you to be like Christ. Is it any wonder that the Holy Spirit would convict you of that particular sin? That doesn't fit with who Christ is. That's not how Christ would have lived. You know, sometimes we probably dismiss that the four letters W-W-J-D as kind of like a fad that question what would Jesus do came out of that uh, book, um, In His Steps, by somebody help me out, Oswald Sanders. What is that right? Sheldon. Sheldon. That sounds even better. Uh, we're going to go with that one. Patty gets the prize today. Um, in his steps, that kind of fictional story, you remember the the homeless man stumbles into the church and isn't received well, and it kind of creates this question in everybody's mind, including the pastor, what would Jesus do? How would he have treated this guy that didn't fit in the church? And that question kind of sweeps through the church and businessmen and Families, everybody's asking this question before they make any significant decision. They ask, what would Jesus do? Well, that kind of caught on years and years after that novel came out. And there were hats and shirts and wristbands, you know, of WWJD. Uh, But it is essentially a very valid question. We should be asking, how would Jesus respond in this moment to, to my, you know, teenager who's kind of straying from an attitude that looks spiritually healthy. Uh, How does this look in a moment when I think I'm right and my spouse is, is wrong and yet she thinks she's right? And what would Jesus do in that moment? What would it look like in this moment to manifest the sanctification that isn't for sanctification's sake, but is to make me look like Christ? So I am right to ask that question. How would Jesus respond in this moment? When would Jesus be firm with the truth? Kind of turning over the money tables in the temple. There are times I think our children and our young people need to see righteous indignation and not be coddled even in their disobedience with, you know, maybe you could do better. The rod straightens things out really quick. It it solves that conversation of of the bickering and, and trying to push the boundaries. They run into the rod. And they find law. They realize there is a standard. God is holy and he doesn't mess around. Your kids need to read the story of Nadab and Abihu being burnt to a crisp by the holiness of God. And then Joshua, or Moses rather, saying, a couple of you pick up the the remains in their clothes and carry them out. You say, my kid would be terrorized by that. Well, if they're not, why would they ever need to turn from their sin to the rescue Jesus offers? You need to show them a righteous standard. In our parenting, they need to run into a boundary. Sometimes the boundary is as simple as you don't just get up from the table and wander off. You're not in charge here. That's not how it works. You need to ask to be excused or you need to do this. You need to, just boundaries that help them to realize somebody other than me is in charge. How would Jesus communicate holiness? to your children how would he communicate there is an authority that you must obey how would you how would jesus communicate i'm submissive to the will of my father so i have no trouble calling you to obedience to the word of god so what do you want to change i know we have our list and that's not a bad thing but just remember that list falls under the umbrella of god's agenda for change which is to make you like christ and one day that will happen. You read the rest of Romans 8 there and you realize that there's a whole process. It's going on now and it's going to complete. When Jesus comes back, we'll be glorified, we'll be perfected, we will be without sin, and that will be called heaven. Chapter 2 asks the question, why do you want to change? Are you trying to achieve a standing? Are you trying to make an impression with God, with others, with yourself, in the sense of, you remember we said we could sin and sometimes we're mad at ourselves. I'm better than that and that's not who I am. Well, it is who you are, but by God's grace, he's going to change you. So don't try to to present some kind of facade that isn't there. Are you trying to achieve a standing or are you acting on the standing you already have? The Bible calls you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, regardless of how you struggled this week, the Bible calls you a saint. You say, I thought sainthood was reserved for those who... No, sainthood, as the Bible uses the label, is reserved for those who repent of their sin and trust Christ for salvation. Now you are set apart. Remember, holiness, sanctification, the word saint is first, by definition, spatial. It just means to push something apart from everything else. You might have ingredients you're chopping on a, on a cutting board, and you slide them over with the knife, and now you cut something else. That spatial separation is the start of understanding sanctification and holiness. We are set apart. Why do you want to change? It should be first because of who I am in Christ. I have been set apart. He has said, I am going to make you holy. You're my people. And this is illustrated for us in all kinds of ways, even in the Old Testament. Just read the history of Israel, that first people of God that served as a picture for us. And there were certain laws that just set them apart. And to this day, you will have no good explanation for why they had to do some of those things other than they were to be different than the nations around them. And that's as close as God gets into telling them why sometimes. Why they couldn't blend certain fibers in their garments. Why you can't boil a goat in its mother's milk and why you can't cut down the fruit trees at certain times and why you couldn't even eat some of those foods You know, some people want to say, well, they couldn't eat pig because of the Chikina worm. Well, I don't think that's the case, because by the time we study Acts, Peter can eat the bacon and the ham. There was a a principle at work in, in God's governance of his people to teach them you are to be different. So why do you want to change? It needs to be because we are acting on our Standing with God. We are called to be saints. And if you read the introduction to some of the letters, especially Corinthians, he calls them saints and then calls them to be saintly. He says, this is what you are. Now you need to be that. Keep being what you already are in Christ. Or as we often summarize so much of the New Testament letters, become what you are. You are a saint set apart, so keep becoming that. Keep striving for that kind of holiness. That's why we want to change. You can't impress God. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus perfectly keeps the will of the Father. So you don't have to try to impress God with your righteousness. You're a child of the Father. You're a bride of the Son. You're the home of the Holy Spirit. There is a Trinitarian sense of a real confidence in your standing. Recognize what it is, embrace that, and now live that out. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, or we could say for the evidential sanctification in your life, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Romans 8 told us God predestined us to become like Christ. Ephesians 2 says it differently. He's working on us because he decided before that we should be a people that produce good works. Chapter 3 asks the question, how are you going to change? And his emphasis here was that change happens by faith in God's plan to renew us, in God's word to renew us. And the chapter, I feel, was probably the weakest chapter in his kind of practical help for us. However, uh, we'll look at another resource that I think would expand on this chapter, how faith is at the heart of our change. He rested on Ezekiel 36, the promise of God to put a new heart within us, to take out that stony heart and to give us a new heart, He'll put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his statutes and keep his judgments and do them. In this chapter on how to change, I think he could have expanded a little bit on an emphasis of our part in sanctification. His answer to how was very much by faith in what God is doing. It's just that generally in sanctification, we recognize there is a, there is a synthesis there is God at work and ultimately the cause of our sanctification, but there is our part in pursuing, in doing, in, in loving with all of our heart, in doing the one another's, in all the obedience of uh, Scripture. And really in the first chapter, I thought he was even bringing out more of the how do we change by emphasizing worship in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul writes, we all with unveiled face, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, beholding, we are being transformed into the image, the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. So beholding, we are being transformed. I think some of that answer to the how, yes, it's by faith, but in the beholding, we find that power for change. We find the becoming. I think he could have emphasized the obedience of Scripture, the obedience to the commands God gives. Holiness will look like obedience. Roy?
1: That word synthesis gives me pause. Uh, it's like I bring part, God brings part. Exactly. I don't believe do that. He does it all. It's both 100%, and it's usually me crying out saying, I can't, you must, now I
0: will. I don't think you, you're going to find a lot of agreement with we do it all. Um, but I think, I think, are you really? Sure. Like generally, we, we recognize whatever happens is by the work of God, his righteousness and now we are living that out by the help of the Spirit. By synthesis, we're just recognizing there is something of, your word was both, or together, hence the, the sin, S-Y-N, just means with. So I am cooperating with that Spirit's work of righteousness in my obedience. Um, and I think if we think of just obedience We won't be confused by, you know, a synergy, a working together. Um, So when Jesus says, if you love me, John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. So Jesus has no trouble just saying, here's the list of commandments. Love makes this list not some kind of legalistic self-righteousness. Love makes that list an expression of worship. God is worth me living in holiness. I see the value of Christ's likeness, and I willingly move towards it. So, yes, if I love Christ, I will keep his commandments. I will hear all of the instruction of Scripture and not think, oh, brother, this is just legalistic religion trying to make us all look the same. No, I would think this is the plan of God in saving sinners and fitting them for heaven with the righteousness of Christ. Effort, I think, is probably a word that kind of falls on hard times in a lot of our understanding of sanctification. We react so violently against works in salvation, works for merit, works for self-righteousness. And we should. Ephesians 2, this is the gift of God. His grace that allows our faith to be put in Christ. And it says, it's not of works, lest anyone would boast of anything. Even saying, well, I believed, how come you didn't? No, even that faith is flowing from the grace of God. So we should react against works. And you think of the Reformation and, you know, so much of the Roman church being dominated by just ritual and tradition and doing. Yes, we should react against works. However, in the very next verse, after warning us about salvation is not of works and you cannot boast, comes the verse I just read in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works. Nothing before salvation comes of works. Everything after salvation comes of works. My only hope of knowing you're a Christian is by your works. I look at the fruit, Jesus tells me, and by your fruit, I can make a conclusion. Will I always be right? No. But Jesus says, you're not God. All you can do is evaluate somebody's life, their works, their fruit. So effort and work in the Christian life is is a spirit-filled virtue. This is a good thing. Do you really want to tell your kids, like, this is the way you need to do this and have them say, well, you know, I don't want to do any of that. Well, it almost doesn't matter what you want. This is the way you're going to do it. In the Christian life, we don't quite hear it that way. It doesn't matter what you want. But in a sense, we should remember at times our wanter, our wanting is going to be wanting sin. Remember James 1, we're drawn away of that lust, we're enticed. There is a want that has to be curtailed. And at some point we say to ourselves, I don't care what I want, I have to do what's right. Right now I want to use my words to prove that I'm right and to lower this person I'm talking to to the right position because they're wrong. But the Bible says a soft answer will turn away wrath. So I have a choice to make. I can do what I want and just go off in this moment, or I can yield myself to true righteousness, and I can make the effort in that moment to stop sinning and choose righteousness. That kind of work, that cooperation with the Spirit is a good thing. Because that was the Spirit's work, warring against the flesh to prompt you to rein in what you were about to say. Therefore, we've established it is the work of God that we are ever righteous. However, in that moment, he's asking you to cooperate with the Spirit and choose the soft answer. What happens if you don't? Are you no longer a Christian? No, that's not the case. But we realize now that we should have made the choice, the effort, to be godly in that moment. So don't be afraid of this idea of effort. Uh, Actually, I'll just use some of these resources now. I talked a moment ago about um, this chapter maybe being weak and not accompanying effort with the work of God in our sanctification Uh, As far as understanding the work of God and our sanctification, Sinclair Ferguson has given us a book in recent years, Devoted to God, Blueprints for Sanctification. And he's going to help us understand how the renewing of the mind now is going to produce this change of the life. Um, So if you look for Devoted to God, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, a great resource on sanctification. Regarding effort, Effort, kind of the other side. These two books would be great companion books because we're going to understand clearly the work of God in our sanctification and effort as well. Ferguson's not going to miss that. Kevin DeYoung, another uh, contemporary of our day, uh, has written a little book. This one's a little older. The Hole in Our Holiness. Uh, What's missing in our understanding of holiness? And one of his chapters in here... Uh, has just a great title, Spirit-Powered, Gospel-Driven, Faith-Fueled Effort. And he kind of camps out on the effort that we are to put into being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, and keeping the commands of Scripture. So a Spirit-Powered Effort. A gospel-driven effort, based on my standing in Christ, this is why I live this way. A faith-fueled effort. It's not of my works, but of the righteousness that the Spirit works in us. So don't be afraid of effort. 1 Corinthians 9. Run the race. And the illustration there is given to us. That, that's effort. I love track and field, so we just had world championships. We just had more races over in Europe, and generally I'm going to look up on YouTube and watch some of those races. There's just so much of the biblical illustration that comes to life in 1 Corinthians 9 about effort uh, in that Christian walk. John, you had something?
1: I think related to part of what we had said earlier about faith, you know, there's Hebrews 11 and 6 that talks about how without faith it is impossible to please God. And then uh, have, uh, you have know, James you know, explaining that your works are an outflowing of faith. You're, they're demonstrating your faith. And then just this week I was reading in Luke 18, Christ says in the last half of verse 8, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that just started pondering on faith and what is he looking for when he's looking for faith on the earth. And that seems to be the outworking of that faith that's demonstrated by the works that's pleasing to God. It's, but it's not us doing the works to build up the image or you know, self-confidence or whatever, but it's that faith in God and what hes you good yes. in us.
0: So, if you remember the Swedish method of Bible study, we've walked through that a few times. Something to see, uh, you know, something to ask, something to do, and somewhere to look. And John's given us a couple other passages to help us think through this faith in sanctification and the doing. Uh, And Hebrews 11 is a great text. I hadn't thought of that to to think of by faith, so and so did something. And we understand all those stories are stories of sanctification. They were living by faith, and it produced a life of doing, of obedience. Uh, John referenced, was it Luke? Um, When it says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, how do you find faith? Well, in Matthew, speaking of the end, it says... Jesus will separate the believers from the unbelievers and he'll say, this is how he'll do it. There were some of you who visited me when I was in prison and fed me when I was hungry and clothed me when I was naked and gave me drink when I was, well, and people are going to say, well, we never did that for you, Lord. And he says, if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And essentially the day of judgment, the separation is by their fruits, by the works that obviously originated in faith or in unbelief. Uh, So there's a lot of scripture that's going to make you think about faith and works. I believe, therefore I behave a certain way. Um, I know something and therefore I do something. Uh, you, You are the way you are because of what you believe. And this is Uh, driving us back to this idea of our sanctification. If we believe the Holy Spirit is in us to make us righteous, then we're going to have a commitment to living righteously, running the race. Philippians 3, pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all energy, that he powerfully works within me, In describing his ministry in the church, Paul says, I'm struggling, I'm toiling with all this energy that he is giving me to do this work. 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight. If you remember, the Greek words are agonize, a good agony. This is effort in the Christian life. And yet in every effort you make, when you really dig into it, you realize that was by the grace of God. And Paul makes this really clear. In all of his talk about running and fighting and pressing and toiling and struggling, 2 Peter adds, make every effort to supplement your faith with godliness, with virtue. In all of that language, Paul would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Even though he goes on to say, I labored more abundantly than all the rest of them. But he did it by the grace that God gave him. So God will get all the glory for our sanctification because he's doing it. But God is glorified when you choose him over sin and make the effort at godliness. Chapter four was the question, when do you struggle? And we struggle when our thoughts and desires are not instructed by the word. And so we're called back to the word, Hebrews 4, which is a discerner of the thoughts. Let's separate these thoughts out. The intents of the heart. What am I thinking? Is that true? What does God's word say about it? It gets down to our, our value system. So you could go back to Matthew 6. Verse 21 there in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There, this idea of a place. And if you think of that place being yielding to temptation, how did I get there? How did my heart get there? The scriptures tell us you treasured something. You wanted something that that temptation offered. You saw value in it. And so you went there. And so we, we, we come to understand that I, I need my values. I need the way I esteem things. I need that calibrated by the word of God or I will struggle. The root cause of my sinful behavior is always my heart. It's always my heart. And so I need to figure out what is most valuable in life. And that's an ongoing reminder. You may have decided what's most valuable. You think living for God is most valuable. Losing your life for his sake and the gospel. So you're going to live the Christian life by faith in Jesus. You think that's most valuable. You really believe that if you seek first the kingdom, God will take care of everything else. You're going to make it through this life all the way to heaven if you put that first. But we need to be reminded sometimes of that. Uh, We need to remind ourselves that that really is what we're about, uh, or else we struggle. Our values get influenced by a bombardment of everything the world says is valuable. You look around and you really think maybe a few more dollars is more valuable, and so if I spend a little more time at work and less time at home, maybe we get ahead and, and we're better off because we have more. That can't be the way you make that decision. I'm not saying it's wrong to make the few more dollars sometimes. I'm just saying don't do it because of some value you've assigned to having wealth. That may just be a snare you're stepping in. Figure out what is most important and then arrange life around it. Essentially, that's what God is saying. Figure out what's most important and he'll make sure the rest of the arrangement does work out doesn't mean we don't have to do any arranging or prioritizing. It's exactly what the text is saying. You have to prioritize something. And then find God's help in arranging the rest. Where your treasure is, what you value, you pursue. There your heart will be also. Chapter 5, what truths do you need to turn to? And this was this valuable counseling principle behind every sin is a lie. Go to the Garden of Eden and see the lies unfold. You can see them in black and white, simple, simple little sentences there. Lies unfolding. But recognize as, as easily as you see them as lies, then ask yourself the question how did they believe something so wrong? And then ask how do I believe? Lies. Why do I believe the same lies over and over again? Ask yourself those questions. What is the lie behind this temptation? And the author reminded us in this chapter that we must not merely say God is good. We must also say God is better. Because we'll value something and then we have to recognize not only is God good, Because in our minds, we might say, but so is this. Sin offers pleasure for a season. I have to say God is better. That's the full picture of faith. God is good. That's true. But in that goodness, that is a better goodness than anything the devil can offer. His lies will offer us something good. Some of you remember, you know, cigarette commercials and cigarette billboards and all the movie stars promoting the smoking, right? And it looked cool. And then they were kind of banned from even promoting it because we realized how bad this was for everybody. There was, there was a lie being promoted. Boy, you'll really be a someone. You'll be like that great Western star. You'll be like this movie star. You'll be a somebody and fit in with this elite crowd of high rollers and all the images that were presented. And it was all a lie and still is. But the truth we're told sets us free. So recognize the devil is pursuing you with a handcuff. He, he's, he's waiting, he's jingling that thing, and he's waiting to slap it on your wrist if you're willing to believe the lie. It's bondage. But the truth always sets us free. So, cash down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring every thought into captivity in the obedience of Christ. Christ-likeness means fighting even desperately against lies, working hard to see how is that not true and what is true. So the battle of lie versus truth is one of these counseling Tools that you need for yourself and you need to help others. Chapter 6 adds another one, the language of desire. What desires do you need to turn from? Again, Hebrews 11, Moses, raised in the court of Pharaoh, had to choose. Had to choose that kind of life or a greatly diminished life, it looked like, to, to choose to identify with the people of God by faith, but maybe to suffer the consequences with them. So the pleasure of sin for a season, Egypt, or maybe suffering with the people of God and the choice of faith was the right choice. What desires do you need to turn from? Behind every sin is a lie and behind every sin is a wrong desire. Or at least that's its target. The temptation is targeting desire, drawn away by our own lust and enticed. So temptation, they're everywhere. We would probably say they're not necessarily wrong. You can't help the fact that you're in a corrupt world. But that temptation is appealing to some desire. And our great hope then is that we have a greater desire. We don't want to drink out of the murky, dirty, algae-stained pond when we could drink out of that sparkling, cold, crystal-clear spring from the mountain. We have a greater desire, and that's what keeps us in a moment of thirst from going after the scum water. The author says this, We will always choose what we believe will bring us the most delight. When you choose obedience, it's because you truly believe that Old Testament principle that came to the people of Israel again and again obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings a curse. There are entire chapters, one of the longest chapters in Deuteronomy is is a list of curses that God says he will bring on his people, dozens and dozens and dozens of them, down to like thorns in your eyes. Uh, Not only will your cattle not produce and your children will be taken in captivity and you'll have thorns in your eyes, it's just like this vast imagination of just how bad it could be under the wrath of God. And the principle was there to help them get it. Like, just choose life. Choose obedience. This is the way to live. Obedience to God is the good life. Believing the devil's lies always ends in ruin. Marlene? Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, now we have to package that in all of scripture. This isn't like some crazy Christmas list. Whatever you want, you're going to get because you delight in the Lord. That mindset simply reveals we didn't understand the first part of the verse, delighting in the Lord. Because what the psalmist is saying, and he, specifically says elsewhere is, the Lord is enough. Remember when he says, you are my portion? That was the dispensed inheritance. He received it and he said, perfect. I couldn't ask for anything more. So if I'm delighting in the Lord, he's enough. That's my portion. Well, then what kind of desires must I really have? I don't think I have all these fleshly, carnal desires and love for all this stuff the world offers. I simply want whatever God's offering. Whatever he's asking of me, I'll do that. That's my delight. That's my desire. In other words, I think when we get that verse right, God will foster delight in you when you express even fledgling interest in him. You make an effort at delighting in the Lord, saying I'm satisfied with him, And God will, like, anchor that. He'll cement that desire in you. He'll give you exactly what you're doing, the delight in him. What desires do you need to turn from? Turn from that broken cistern that holds no water and come to the fountain of living waters. Uh, Remember, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you delight in that, you want that. And that'll help you make no provision for the flesh. You'll you'll be delivered from wrong desire by a greater right desire. Chapter seven, what stops you from changing? And the author concludes love of self, love of sin, and says the answer is a life of repentance, a life of faith. Expose any of those sinful Uh, besetting sins, push them into the light. Recognize them for what they are. We're never going to change until we truly recognize what repentance looks like. We just have to admit, I am tempted when I am drawn away by my own desire and enticed. Why didn't I do what was right then? Why did I sin? Because I chose to sin. Once I can recognize that, once I can own that, read Psalm 32, read Psalm 51. Once we can say, there was the problem, it wasn't some cosmic happenstance. I chose. Therefore, I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I need grace. Well, guess what? All of that is available to you when you say, I sinned. I sinned against God. I'm at His mercy. But in saying that, God's promise is when you confess and forsake, you will find mercy. Chapter 8 adds to this call to repentance and faith, making those actions, repenting and believing, strategies in this effort at sanctification. Knowing we're supposed to walk this way and I drift a little, get back on the path, repent, repent. And believe, okay, I'm back. He called it sowing to the Spirit, cultivating a new affection for God, saying yes to the Spirit's warring against the flesh and walking in the steps of the Spirit. And with this theme of sowing to the Spirit, the conclusion was, I sow to the Spirit so that I will reap in the Spirit. Sanctification is a harvest. It doesn't just happen. We don't step back and say, let go and let God, and if he wants me to change, he'll change me. Otherwise, I'll stay where I am. That is not the spirit of the scriptures. We are to be sowing to the spirit so that we will reap of the spirit. It's a harvest. Flee youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, Those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Sow those things, pursue them. Go after what is good and right. Chapter 9, how can we support one another in changing? The church must be a community of truth, a community of repenting, a community of grace. You should be able to say to someone, man, this week I really blew it. You know, I, I was... Let my anger get the best of me. It was evident in the workplace and in the home. I've I've sought forgiveness. Would you pray that uh, that I can understand change this week? And then people meet that with grace and truth so that there is change. Don't be afraid of recognizing and kind of mimicking the language of Psalm 32 and 51, saying, this is where I sinned. Do that before God and do that to others so that we can take each other down this path. Ephesians 4, of growing into maturity. We support one another in change. Listen to Romans 15. Paul writes to the church saying, I myself am confident concerning you, my brothers, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Admonish is that word put into the mind. So... Paul is saying, I know you're good at helping others to think right. You're telling them what they need to hear. You're full of goodness, so you're not judgmental and arrogant in this. But in that goodness filled with knowledge, true knowledge of God's word, you're spilling that out on others and telling them how they can be helped. You see, we can love each other this week, but maybe not as fully as we should if we're not speaking truth." To each other. Be in the Word for your own sake, but be in the Word for the sake of others, so that in your goodness filled with knowledge, you're able to put into the mind of someone else what they need to hear to become more like Christ. And so he closes by asking, Are you ready for a lifetime of daily change? A lifetime, God's going to complete it from the day He saved you until the day you die or Jesus comes back, all of your life. It's going to be a spiritual battle. Bring that down into the alarm clock goes off. And on that very day, the devil wants you to dishonor the name of Christ. God wants you to become more like Christ. The battle's on every day. So be ready for that with confidence that God is working in you. Uh, You can change. Great summary on sanctification. Devoted to God. Sinclair Ferguson, Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness. One other book, classic, uh, R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God. Um, Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia called it a Christian classic when it first came out. Of course, now both those men are deceased and it still remains such. Probably my favorite chapter in here is called The Trauma of Holiness. If we could understand the holiness of God, It would be trauma to us that is only relieved by God's grace in our lives, the holiness of God. Anybody care to read? This is an extra copy I have on the shelf. Does somebody want that? Uh, Come in. All right, there's the hand. I'll get it to you. Lord, thank you for your word and how it instructs us, how it invites us, how it motivates us, how it pleads with us, how it celebrates with us this call to change to become like Christ. Uh, For these past weeks, we've looked at all these different angles. May your word take root in our minds and renew them so that we see the devil's lies. We see his temptations appealing to fleshly desires. We see those strongholds gradually being built and we launch our attack. We stand firmly with the armor that you've given us on the truth of your word and we tear down those strongholds and bring every thought into obedience to Christ. This is the kind of change we need this week if we're going to be any better than we were last week. By your grace and knowing your promise, uh, help us to change, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.